Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast that I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. My guest this week, I feel like I've played a game of Tom and Jerry with all my life. My guest, she started out by going to a university called the University of Central England to study media and communications in 1993. That university then got renamed Birmingham City University and I went there in 2011 to guess what, study media and communications, just like her. My guest, in 2002, she became a radio presenter on the Big Toe radio show. A year after, I was a TV reporter for them. She has a podcast, 16 Summers. I've got a podcast, Secure the Insecure. But whilst I feel like I've known my guest her whole life, I've been watching her on TV for 23 years since I was five years old. For me, she's not seen me yet. But I'm delighted to say she joins me because she is what we call in the industry a TV legend. Please welcome to Secure the Insecure, Kirsten O'Brien. Hello, Kirsten. Oh, hello, you. How are you? Oh, this is exciting. I had Angelica Bell on a couple of weeks ago and I was like, well, I've had Angelica... I've spoken oh. to you. I know how nostalgic we both get about CBBC. You know that I'm still stuck being seven years old. I thought I've got to get you on the podcast because no one else here has heard how much I have just got my whole life based around your work in TC9 at Television Centre all those years ago with you and an aardvark named Otis that when the lifts in Spain are called Otis, I thought they were named after the aardvark. Oh, because I think that is where it came from, weirdly. You do know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts, isn't it? Because, yeah, that was one of the first things I learned when I joined. I was like, why did y'all go to see Aardvark? And it was from somebody getting a lift and going, Otis, there we go. And yet I base it on the other way around, of going every yeah. lift in Spain was named after an Aardvark. <laughs> oh, good times. I've got loads to talk about. Obviously, 16 Summers, your podcast, we've got to talk about because I'm obsessed with it. But I want to go back, as you know, of just a bit of reminiscing because I'm still stuck in my childhood. So 
is it okay if we digress a little bit back to the 90s when you started out your career i was a little boy aspiring to be a cbbc presenter and you were living my dream <laughs> yes they were oh my gosh good times they were so fun back then because the audience was massive i think like sometimes the audience into neighbors you know that last link was like anywhere between five million and eight million sometimes which is like I mean, some channels would kill for those audiences now, wouldn't they? And you had that responsibility. If you've read Philip Schofield's book, Life's What You Made It, and he talks all about his time at the broom cupboard, and he was the one who started out of Gordon the Gopher because he had seven minutes to fill, and he saw this little bit of glove, and he was like, I'm going to put that on and pretend it's a puppet, and all these stories about the broom cupboard days. You then came in towards the end of Boom Cupboard where they went, look, we're getting 8 million viewers. We need to actually give the audience something to watch. And they've created this whole studio in what they called Television Centre 9, which uh, next to where the Television Centre is on the corner, it's not there anymore. But kind of if people have seen this morning recently, they'll see the outside. It was just past there and there was this whole building with, a, with the garden, the Blue Peter Garden next to it. And that's where all your links came from. And that's where the CBBC channel came to after after your time there. And that was the hub of children's television. And you were doing that continuity with a with a, a Votus Yardvark, the puppet, with co-hosts like Richard McCall, and just having fun. Yeah, um, Dave, brilliant Dave Chapman, that was Otis the Yardvark, that needs all credit because he put in so much work on that. We used to be on together and we would quite often rehearse something for cameras and you know for the director for content and stuff and then quite often Dave and I'd go yeah but it's not going to be like that when we go live and then all hell would break loose when we went live we were quite naughty like that but that was the joy of it back then that it was live we didn't have autocue you know we had certain points that we had to get to you know if you had prizes in a competition to set or you had to explain something that was coming up later on in a program but other than that, it was just about having fun uh, and, and being entertaining. And, and I think that's why Philip Schofield always talks about the joy of those days. It's because actually there are very few jobs where you can have that playground environment and be live on telly. This is the thing, because you could do anything. It wasn't just reading out birthday cards. You would do the games and... I spent a lot of money trying to enter these games and I got on quite often. So I had, at one point, my whole bedroom was basically sponsored by CBBC. I had a <laughs> Pop Idol karaoke machine. I had a game that went in the air and um, I was the first ever, actually, we'll, and we'll come to Smile, which was on a Sunday morning that you did. I was the first ever person to play uh, What's Up Never, whatever the game was called. And I have the VHS video of how to play the game because it had never been done on TV before. That's how anorak oh, I am. That is incredible because one of the things I remember about the prizes is I used to do um, a Saturday morning show at one point called Saturday Aardvark. And at the time, Ant and Deck were just starting out on the other side on ITV. And they started, I mean, BBC for years and years had had, you know, the audience on a Saturday morning going live, live and kicking, all of those things. And in the uh, summer, they would put on something from Continuity, which was us. And no one was ever worried about ratings because it was now a domain and then when Ant and Deck came along and they started to take that audience and people started to get a little bit worried <laughs> we used to have somebody in our gallery would watch and see when ITV went to the ad breaks 
So we would know then that kids would maybe flick across to us as soon as they had it. So someone would shout, they're on the ad breaks. We would in our studio have all our prizes out go, hey, look what you could win this morning. There's all this Star Wars stuff. And, and that would be our big, like, to try and lure them in at that moment. Like, chuck out our biggest amount of stuff, knowing the kids would have just channel hopped across to try and get them to stay with us. And, of course, we all know historically what happened with Anton Beck and them. Ultimately, we lost that battle. See, I find this so interesting because I was so blasé to this. I watched a bit of CITV with Jungle Run and then Ministry of Mayhem on a Saturday morning, but I never channel hopped between the two. I was a pure CBBC boy, and I presume there were pure CITV viewers. I didn't realise that kids were going across both channels. I didn't know any other afternoon would exist on any other channel. Yeah, I, I mean... I suppose, because I was very much, I was never an ITV kid. Um, I grew up, having said that, I was never allowed to watch Grange Hill, so I was <laughs> I was always annoyed about that. But, yeah, I was very much a BBC family and stuff like, I think, was it Magpie? You won't know about this, Johnny. On the other side, I it was only later on I had people talking about it, and I was like, oh, what's that? And so you're right, some people, I think, were very loyal to the channel and would be like, no, I've got no idea what's happening. But I think around the time, I mean, I'm talking, when would it have been? About 90, when would it be? 98 or something? I think kids were starting to channel hop around, certainly then. And that's why continuity was so important. And they've never, they've tried to um, make it a little bit more when CBBC moved to Media City a couple of years ago and kind of emulate that broom cupboard feeling. But it will never be like what you had. Like you said, it was unscripted. It was fun. But also, you had the benefit of being in the hub of the television centre where so much else was going on. You had Top of the Pops going on. You had Blue Peter going on. You had other programmes like Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross filming their shows that everything in the BBC was basically being made for the TV channels across BBC, ITV and Channel 4 all at the same time. And yet, you were just in the corner viewing it all. Oh, my word, you're making me so nostalgic for those times. Good, this is what I want. (laughs) It helped in terms of getting guests on, definitely, because if people were in the building, if we knew people were filming, we could harangue them to come on. I remember we used to have Neil Morrissey used to come on quite a lot. He was always brilliant. And in fact, weirdly, Ant and Dec did come on our show before they started doing their own thing on the other side. But yeah, I mean, for me, I'd come from Middlesbrough and I came to Television Centre and you would walk around what was called the Ring Road, which was the outer circle. All the studios were in a circle in the middle of the building. And you would see like the car from Only Fools and Horses, the little yellow three-wheeler parked up and also the set marked up like you see saying Top of the Pops Thursday or whatever it was. And yeah, everything went on there. And then you would go up to the BBC bar when we finished. You know, we would come off at, was it, five... Five, the Tempest Five was newsroom, wasn't it? Our last link was 5.35, that was it. And then go up to the BBC bar and everyone would be in there. It was just, you're right, those times will never happen again. Um, and I'm so pleased and proud that I was a part of them. Well, I am as well, because you are my childhood. And I think this is the weird thing is that obviously we've worked together before, is that a lot of people who are my generation have now aspired to be like that and are working in production across TV and radio. You must be working with have all gone... Well, I watched you when I was four years old as well. <laughs> yeah, and that's the bit that ages me, though. That's, that's like the, oh, oh, what's happening? These people now when I'm old enough to be their mother. Uh, yeah, and it's funny because our nanny, actually, we've got a brilliant nanny, Courtney, who looks after my three-year-old twins. And, um, and she used to watch me on telly. 
and and it's, that must be quite strange for her. I mean, she's over it now. She's seen me come down in my dressing gown and all sorts. She's still past it. But yeah, there there is that generation. Um, and and again, that's nice. That that's nice to have those people out there. And, and particularly when I started doing smart, I met people, or I've met people now who said, "Oh, you, I wanted to do art watching that program." And so it's nice to have whatever tiny influence you had. But also, it's and no one knows this, but me and a handful of people. But at the time, about six years ago, you told me that your son has the CBBC logo, the old one. This is because before it became CBBC, it was called Children's BBC, and I think it changed in about ninety-seven. And he has the light uh, box up on his uh, top of his uh, bedroom door. Does he still have that? He does. That was so my that must have been amazing. Bit. Yeah, so when I left CBBC, I got given one of the original neons um, and I have taken care of it ever since. And yeah, it's above his bed. Actually, no, we've moved it downstairs now into the lounge um, just to give it even more prominence because I love it so much. But yeah, it's the original uh, children's BBC neon, um, which I'm very happy to have. And I think I'm right in saying you have tried to um, get that off me on a fair few times. Oh, it's still happening. It's still (laughs) happening. I've got my Blue Peter badges all lined up. I've got my Nev the Bear badge lined up. I've got all my Big Toe Radio Show badges and certificates. I've got my uh, Story Maker certificates. That's the last thing I need to complete the set. (laughs) Maybe you'll get left in my will. Oh, I am. (laughs) It's been arranged. I've spoken to Mark already. It's going to happen. I need that light. No one else needs it but me. Well, that's true, actually. You you would take care of it. Oh, of course I, I would. Of course I would. I've taken. I've got a lot of your autograph cards over the years. They're all in a pride of place. All looked after still. Brilliant. And so, what you've basically got is a journey through hair on on cardboard because I had quite the uh, hairdos over the years. It's one of these things. If you ever went for a job interview, and I'm talking like this, I wouldn't get the job. But I remember back in the day, there was one point. Must have been about 2002. I decided to make. Instead of having wallpaper, I put up every card of every uh, CBBC presenter across my walls. And Big Toe Radio Show, where you also worked, had 100 presenters. And Exchange had 100 presenters. So at one point, all the way up my staircase was just autograph cards of everyone. And I remember having like quadruple versions of you and Gemma Hunt and Angelica Bell. And you're all just sitting in pride of place up my staircase. Oh, that sounds brilliant, though. It's funny, that's reminded me, Mark, my husband, is 10 years younger than me, and on his bedroom door uh, at home, so his old bedroom from being a kid, he still had all stickers on the back of his door from, I think it was like Big Magazine or something, and I scoured them, because I was thinking, I remember being a tiny little thumbnail Big sticker at some point, you know, you used to get the whole sheet of stickers of everything. Sadly, I wasn't on there, but I was thinking that would be hilarious if I had been miniature on the back of his bedroom door for years and years, and now here I am. Oh, see? It's manifestations. (laughs) It's a vision board in real form. (laughs) You've got to manifest these things, and then they'll come true. I I put all the CBBC bugs on my windows, and I got in a lot of trouble because then they didn't come off, and then I had to get new windows made because all my windows had been, like, smudged with stickers, and they just were not moving. Oh, my word. And what happened to all those autograph cards in the end? I've got them all. They're all taken down. They're now in one big wallet alongside the uh, British Soap Awards 2003 and uh, my script from Smile, which it was the one week 
you weren't there, but Danny Harmer stepped in for you, and I said, I've got that book of script still. I'll send you later the pictures. Um, oh, but I've yeah. got it all in Pride of Play. I honestly treasure that. I treasure that time so much. I've got a file of... I used to rip off the front page of every day that I was on of the script, um, and I've got a file of all the front pages um, somewhere. But um, the funny thing is, there's only people like you interested in this. My kids... I try and say, oh, look, here's Bobby on the set. Not, uh, not bothered. Are you a YouTuber, Mum? No, well, then I'm not interested. <laughs> oh, I watch it's YouTube nice all the time. If I'm bored, I will, and I swear on my life, this happens once, uh, about once a month, I will sit and watch old continuity of CBBC in, in between the programmes because I'm so, like, nostalgic about it. And my sister came over the other week for dinner, and I thought, you know what? To get you in a good mood, we're just going to... I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to put Arthur on, and then... We'll just see where life takes us. And we just watched intros to exchange everything. We go, oh, oh, look, it's Moda the Vampire. Oh, my God, it's Play-Dohs. I'm just going to put Arthur on. That sentence wins the night. My other sister, literally, her Christmas was made because my whole family had COVID. Christmas Day, it was the afternoon. We watched an episode of Arthur. Then we watched an episode of Tracy Beaker. Then we watched an episode of Noah's Island. And then we watched an episode of Mona the Vampire and then we watched Ubos which I think was just after your time and oh. oh we were in heaven I'm trying to think of the Arthur theme tune everybody's walking down the street all the people that you meet <laughs> listen to the sound of the beat and I say hey hey what a wonderful, what a wonderful kind of day <laughs> oh DW whoa do you remember what DW stands for oh on. no Tell me. Dora Winifred Reed, get your bottom down here right now. I think that was what her grandma once said. Dora Winifred wow. Reed. So this is it. This is there'll be people listening to this going, Oh my god, this is amazing. There'll be other people going, Why are you not having a conversation? And to me this is like heaven. <laughs> yeah, this is taking me right back. This is brilliant. I was once I remember when we were in the old studio and there's so many stories about that old studio because we were in what was called Pres A. And next door was Pres B. So we, our studio was permanently set up, but Pres B used to flick between points of view, uh, which Anne Robinson did at the time, and film whatever year it was, 98, 99, whatever, which was um, Barry Norman. Is this in TC9 or a different studio? This is when we were up on the second floor. Um, so it was the second incarnation of the broom cupboard. The original one was a tiny broom cupboard with Philip Schofield in. Then there was the second, which was Preze, before we moved to the purpose-built one. But So it meant when I was next to Pres B, that some days I had to share a dressing room with Anne Robinson. So you'd have her sitting there very quietly, a basket of fruit arrived, you know, all very serene and calm. And then I'd be like running in covered in custard that need cleaning off in between links and... Get like really, oh, what is going on with these people? And it was like, what a strange setup that we had to share a room with the points of view people in makeup. It was absolutely brilliant. What was Anne Robinson like? Well, she was just sensible. And it's funny because years later, I met her on points of view. And, you know, I said to her, oh, yeah, I used to share a dressing room with you. I said, you never even gave me a, an apple. And she's like, yes. And then I won points of view. But actually, she was fine. She was quite nice. Um, but yeah, it's so, so weird that we would, you know, next door was going on all this sensible stuff, and in, in our studio there was just the madness of custard and puppets and, and whatever else 
was going on? From my memory, she had a fruit basket next to her delivered, um, and I'd be eyeing up her grapes. <laughs> Hello. There's a chat of blood if you haven't heard it before. <laughs> and give one of your grapes, love. I didn't dare ever say that, ever. No. Well, then you moved to TC9, and you did, and you did a tour. I, mem- I vaguely remember a tour of This oh, Is The New yeah. Studios, and then TC9 then ended up having the CBBC channel on one side, and... CBBC One, because obviously you had to call it CBBC One and CBBC Two, even though it was BBC One and BBC Two, uh, on the other side. And then where BBC One and BBC Two were, had the lift. And then that became Dick and Dom in the bungalow when you'd come off air. And on a Friday, they'd then put the carpet down and then that would become the bungalow. You see, you now know more than me because that must have happened after I left, I think. I think the bungalow happened... Yes, after I left. So I left in, when did I leave? 99, was it? And I then went on to do Smart and, as you said, Smile and Exchange, not Exchange, Short Change, um, loads of shows. Well, let's go to that. So you then do Smart, which you, uh, so it was you, it was Mark Spate and it was Jay. And uh, it had gone from the days of sitting around a desk and you all did your own little bits with little morph in the middle with his little cartoons and you show people how to draw. Now, you didn't have an art background, you had a media background. So how did you transition from just being a straight presenter on CBBC to going, right, I'm actually going to teach you how to draw. I'm going to actually show you not just how to make Tracy's Island, we'll leave that to Blue Peter, but we're going to actually show you how to make things properly. Well, it was interesting because Zoe Ball had done the show, first of all, and the original format was female presenter, two bloke artists and that was the way she did it and then Josie did it um, and when it came to me I am quite naturally arty I've always done craft stuff I've always done art type stuff so I'd kind of said well I'll, I'll give it a go you know I'm happy to do a bit more that said my, my you can try and find this somewhere on YouTube I'm sure it's out there my first ever thing that I did was making um, I think it was an R2-D2 um, and the, the the problem is you've got a camera above your head and you've got uh, cameras facing you. And if you look in the monitor, which is, you know, the telescreen that is showing what they're currently filming, everything's backwards. So all I remember is trying to draw on all the little sort of buttons and an outline of the art. And it was an absolute abomination. Uh, every, um, I, I cringe now when I think of that first thing. It was <laughs> so awful and so bad. So I think I sort of improved over the years because it wasn't just about learn to do this piece of art it was also learn to do it in three minutes learn to do it some of it sort of drawing backwards or upside down because the cameras are facing that way and blah blah blah. so there was a certain technical aspect to it as well um which at that point i hadn't sort of bargained for um but yeah as as the series went on you're right i did do more and more but always jay and mark were the artists and a lot of the big pictures and stuff was completely under their instruction. You know, I'm not under any illusion that I suddenly became some tremendous artist on the show. They were very much, I mean, Jay went to uh, Central St. Martins and still has a brilliant art career. And Mark was just an incredible cartoonist. And Mark became especially a really good friend of yours as well, off, off screen. And obviously he passed away back in 2008 and... I remember how just distraught I was. How did you find it? Because... 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You then had to carry on with CBBC and you did a bit of smart afters, but it was one of those defining moments for you where you couldn't be this happy CBBC presenter. You had to show actually not everything in the world is great. Yeah, I mean, I'd had a bit of that when I first, uh, was in the broom cupboard because my mum died whilst I was in the broom cupboard. And that, for me, was quite... Um, I used to have a situation quite often where I'd be on all week and I'd be bouncing around, you know, here's your birthday cards, here's me and Osis and blah, blah, blah. And then I would leave on a Friday night and sometimes we would stay in the hospital over the weekend where my mum was and then I'd come back again on the Monday morning into this sort of bouncy, happy world. So I was having a bit of... I'd experienced some of that before and that was ultimately one of the reasons I left the broom cupboard in the end because I, I that was like I'm, I'm done I've had this personal situation and and then strangely I had a repeat of that on smart several years later that obviously losing your mum is horrific Mark I was, was physically with me on a daily basis in my job we did one series where they they brought in friends of the show and friends of mine you know people like Ab who is a, still a really very good friend of mine Barney Harwood still a very good friend of mine um, and that was lovely and kind and uh, but I, it just wasn't the same and I, I was done after that you know I just it that was what ended it for me really because it was a lot of it was about my partnership with Stacey and this is the thing that uh 
you know, Barney was known for Smile and Abs was known for Best of Friends and Exchange. And then suddenly all you presenters are cross-polluting these TV programs. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> hold on. What's going on here? No, no, no. You should be in the Exchange studio. Oh, I don't like this. It's like Dave Benson Phillips <laughs> leaving the Get Your Own Back studio and swapping Gunge for Custard Pies to be with Dick and Dom in the bungalow. It doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. At the time, it's, uh, it felt... Oh, did it feel right to do? I mean, that series never felt right. I was I was very aware. Um, I, was it at the start or the end of it? And I've never ever watched it back, so I, I don't know what I can't remember now what I say. But I think I do say something. And I remember I didn't realise how much tension I was carrying that we had to record me saying something about Mark not being there. And I remember just recording it, and then I had to go off. And I, you know, we had to stop recording, and everything stopped, and I had to have a moment. And so it, it never sat right. But it's difficult when you, you know, when you're working with children, or, and for children. Ultimately, you just want them to be all right. And so I think that's what that series was about. You know, they, they brought in other people, and we tried to do what we did. But ultimately, that that was just like, no, I can't do this anymore. And like you said, that was your defining moment in 2009. And you did that big leap from just being a kids TV presenter to going and actually going to the mainstream. And you joined BBC Three and you did a documentary basically straight after called Kirsten's Topless Ambition. I mean, if you weren't a kids presenter before, um, (laughs) will you be a kids presenter again? Now you're looking in the topless industry. But, you know, everyone. Um, How did you find that leap? Because it was pre-social media. So it wasn't like you were getting judged by trolls. There wasn't, you know, an influx of letters coming through to you because no one knew where you were based. So how did you find that change? Because it was very much down to you and how you felt and the producers felt from you being a, just a children's presenter to actually being on adult TV? Well, what I did, first of all, was uh, I did a comedy course because uh, people had said to me, I'd, do, I'd done a show with Steve Merchant, and he, he said, oh, you should write stuff. Um, and I just didn't know how to go about it. So I did a comedy course, and from that I went <laughs> straight up to Edinburgh that summer and did the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and the thing I liked about stand-up and comedy was that it's a very old school craft in that you have to be good at it to survive. But the only way you can get good at it is by doing it and doing it. And part of that, you have hideous gigs and, you know, you die on your backside. And, and that sort of appealed to me as, as a craft and a process. So I, I'd gone off and done that, um, which was my way of sort of evolving myself beyond kids telly. And then I kept getting asked. There was a, Everybody wanted authored documentaries at the time. And I kept getting asked. You got anything, you know, I've got these meetings. I'm like, what you got? What? And I was like, I haven't got anything. I haven't got anything. I don't know. I haven't really got anything. And then I, I sat down and I thought, well, what have I got? What am I about? What interests me? What bothers me? And that was the thing that I here I was trying to get out of kids' telly. And the natural way to get out of kids' telly historically amongst females had been you go off and you do this lads mag photo shoot and go, hey, look, you thought I was sweet and innocent, but here I am now with my knockers half hanging out and look, I'm, I'm now come of age and that, and on they went and into the big world of adult telly. And, and so that it was just exploring that really. And, and it genuinely mattered to me because I'd never done it. I'd never been offered it. And that's what you discover in the documentary. You know, there's a hideous scene where I'm told that, I haven't got boobs that are good enough or a face that's good enough. But at the time, I felt like that was really important for young people to see 
that this is what happens to people. This is, you know, I remember coming out of this meeting with FHM and just ringing my best friend and crying and going, this is absolute. But at the same time, and the producer said to me, are you all right when we came out? I said, no, I'm not. But we had to keep rolling on that because people need to see that those conversations don't always go onto your face but they are the conversations that are being had about women and girls to, that end up in these magazines. You've almost got the protection for the kids there as well because you've experienced growing up talking to kids through a camera and so you've almost got that responsibility that they've grown up with you and so you've kind of taken them with you as you carry on your journey in TV as well. Do you know, I don't think that's ever left me. I have always felt responsible uh, that... When, you, when you're in kids' telly and you feel responsible for the audience in that, you know, you don't swear and there's various things that you, you don't do. And that's never <laughs> really left me, that training. But that's maybe why I did the stand-up, to free me up and loosen me up a bit and go. And I always say that you, I would go on stage and maybe say bloody a bugger or something and people would be so shocked whereas someone would come on after me and use the whole gamut of horrific swear words and people wouldn't bat an eyelid but because I was seen as a kids presenter it would always be me when I came off stage that people would go I can't believe you said that and you're so blue and I'm like well I didn't really but um so I think that was me pushing at those boundaries but ultimately I still feel that responsibility I think in everything I do, I do have a sense of feeling responsible to be uh, honest to the audience in that way. Well, you definitely are. And it's led to you having a radio career and this second wave of broadcasting as you're now on BBC Berkshire and you've done cover on BBC Newcastle, BBC Scotland, did you used to do? Yeah, I did Newcastle for a year um until i had my twins um yeah i've always done radio alongside people have always been surprised but i literally from when i started on cbbc the the first radio show i did was a world service radio show with steve merchant and he was writing the office at the time he'd got on some uh, bbc director traineeship scheme and so we used to do this world service radio show together and i looking back now how ridiculous but i jokingly used to say to him oh how are you getting on right in the shop with your little fat-faced friend <laughs> little did i know the international hit that he was writing and, and you know what became of him but yeah i started out with him doing that show and then I used to do the Flying Eye on Capital. As you say, the Big Toe Radio Show, the Little Toe Radio Show. I've always done radio alongside. I absolutely love radio as a medium. Again, because it harks back to it's one of the few remaining live environments. And given that I start on live telly, one of the few places you can rock up now and, and be live and have a sort of variety of, of topics that you cover. And again, you work into times so it's mathematical as well, is radio, which I absolutely love. Well, this is the thing, because I always wanted to be a CBBC presenter, and it was going to the CBBC Prom in the Park in 2002 in Hyde Park, where they announced there's going to be this brand new radio show called the Big Toe Radio Show on what is now BBC Radio 4 Extra, but at the time was BBC Radio 7. And you were presenting it with Kevin Dwala, who people will know from Blue's Clues. That was the first time I went into a radio studio, because I used to join you in the studio as a little kid when I was 10 years old. And the picture I've put out with this podcast is us together when I was 10 years old. So you gave me my first radio experience and I've ended up a career working in radio all because of you. Well, no, I mean, you're overstating that. It's not because of me at all. It's because you have um, pursued your dream and stuck at it and 
you were a fine example of, you know, go after your goal and don't give up on it. Oh, it's not because of me. But I wouldn't have ever known what radio was like until I was a little kid with you. Yeah, that's true. But you, you were good at what you did. We had you back. Didn't we? You know, you, you weren't just a one-hit wonder. Oh, no, I've got my book of certificates and the Big Ten Radio because every time you'd go on the show, you'd get another certificate. And so I built them up into a folder, into a book, into a bookcase, into <laughs> wallpaper for the whole house. Oh, that was brilliant. It was brilliant. And this is the thing about radio. It's all intimate, isn't it? You get to be intimate with your listeners and grow with them and learn from them. I think that's the amazing thing about radio is that medium is the only place where you really get to know your listener and they see you as a friend, even if you don't see them as a friend. We get to grow that relationship with you. Yeah, and particularly I find that in local radio that we're very much talking about, you know, I'm mentioning the soft play that I might take the twins to and and you you are literally reacting with the other mums in there that might take their kids there and have coffee. And and certainly I think in BBC local radio you, you are just touching oh that sounds wrong touching your lo- local community i was going to say but i rephrased that o'brien uh reaching out and bonding with your local community there we go <laughs> well look you said it not me you said it not me and then you've come even more intimate because you launched a podcast called 16 summers which i absolutely love if you've not heard it um listen to the episode of otis dealey to ease you in because if you like that bit of nostalgia, Otis and Kirsten talking a little bit about CBC is amazing. But what, first of all, what is your podcast about? Because what it's about and what you do are very two different things. So the premise of the podcast is based on one simple question. Would you rather have the childhood that you have or the childhood that you're giving to your kids? And it came about because I have three kids um, and I went my childhood, I grew up abroad So when I was two, we went to Algeria, we then went to Kuwait, we went to Nigeria, we went to Singapore, and I came back when I was sort of 12. And so I had this incredible upbringing of, uh, we would come home via Hawaii, or we went to Australia. Uh, I was at international schools, so I had friends from from Iceland, from Malaysia, and I suddenly realised my kids were never going to experience any of that. And I felt a bit bad, like, gosh, I've had this incredible childhood, and they will never have the child. And, and that was how it came about. I thought, I wonder whether everybody feels the same way or do some people think, God, my kids are getting a way better childhood. So I just now have an hour-long chat with a celeb. We talk about their childhood. We talk about their kids' childhood. And they have to make the decision at the end of, of which one they think's better. But also, it's a really nice, deep conversation where your guests are pondering their life. It's not just about their childhood. It's about their careers, about the defining moments so you've got that hook of about charters but actually you have a really nice deep chat with them as well yes yeah because as part of that you have to look into sort of pivotal moments in their life like with melinda messenger when she ended up plastered all over billboards you know in her undies and how her kids feel about that you know knowing that that's your mum's past so all, all of the big twists and turns in someone's life are actually relevant for how they've ended up bringing up their children and the decisions they've made going forward based on those so yeah i do end up it's not just their childhood it becomes the sort of huge choices decisions and and where things have gone wrong in their life and obviously you mentioned melinda messenger and i've mentioned otis to you who have you learnt the most from and what have you learnt in this series so far 
just think, I've just interviewed, it's not come out yet, Mr. Motivator. Love him. Love, and, how amazing is he? But that's the thing. I, it was a really difficult interview because I couldn't crack his positivity. And, you know, so he'll say things like, well, yeah, my dad used to beat me when I was younger. And I'd be like, well, were you frightened of your dad? Well, no, because if he hadn't said that, that wouldn't make me the person I was. And I couldn't get past his incredible take on life of turning everything into a positive. So it sounds weird, but it was really hard to interview him. But then I ended the call, literally me and Steve, my producer, were like, Right, we're fired up in life. Life is wonderful. It sees every opportunity. You know, it was infectious what he did to us. Um, and so although he, he's difficult to interview, I'm hoping it'll sound really good because whatever's happened to him, and there is a lot happened to him in his life, he somehow <laughs> remains relentlessly positive about it. Well, also, he's a walking, motivational, inspirational quote book you know he just talks in inspirational quotes and you don't even need to say yeah. anything they'll just go i'm just going to tell you that everything happens for a reason okay thank you thanks derek yeah. everything happens for a reason right i'm gonna like you said i'm gonna go away with that now brilliant yeah yeah and i tried to sort of uh, come at him from every angle to try and see if there was any breaking that and i genuinely think it the positivity runs through him like a stick of rock you know right through his core is this endless positivity and that's not a a, a learnt behaviour, it's not a, a thing he's putting on to get work and jobs, it's, it's him so that has been, a, that was a really interesting one. And that's the thing that's the thing, especially after Covid of a year that we've had, that we need that positivity and to ra- surround ourselves with positivity rather than toxicness. Coming at it from all sides now, looking back at the past 25 years of your career can you believe it, a quarter of a century You've been in the spotlight. How do you look back at your time now? I look back, thankfully, actually, uh, coming off the back of Mr. Motivator there, in that I feel really grateful that I was on kids' telly at the time that I was, because I feel like we had these huge audiences. Kids' telly hadn't been sort of pocketed away into its own channel by then. We were still on BBC One. Um And so I'm really glad that I was around at those times. I'm glad for the grounding that it gave me in terms of learning about live telly. um, And as I say, the environment that you can't replicate in very many places. And also, I'm I'm glad for the profile that it gave me. You know, I'm I'm lucky that however many years you mentioned it was on, (laughs) that I am still going and I'm still loving what I do and I'm still able to do the thing that I love. So um, I, I look back gratefully thankfully and with a deep joy about it because you know one day i'd be riding around tv center in the noddy car the next day i'd be interviewing george clooney there was no knowing what was going to happen it was brilliant oh well like you said you don't know what dave chapman's going to do what what's otis Ardwell going to be doing today is he going to be dressed as a nun is he going to be a doctor with you and david bull or are you going to be interviewing like you said interviewing a celebrity literally no two days are the same Kirsten o'brien i want to ask you about reality stars now because it's very interesting that you've worked so hard for your career 25 years later. Like you said, you're still in the game. Your social media presence could be better, but you've not had to go on Love Island to get that career. How do you look at reality TV now and the fact that people are just giving shows, yet you had to start from Kiss TV and Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield, Fern Cotton, all of you started in the same era, and yet reality stars are coming in and effectively taking those jobs kind of away from you, even though it's a little bit different. Um, yeah, I think I think you could be.
beat yourself up about that, and I think you could get into a real tears about, you know, there is a danger in this business, no matter if it's reality people or not, that there's always going to be somebody or some gig where you're going, well, why didn't I get that? Or why are they better than me? Or that is a dangerous part of the business, really. And I think with, with age, I've learnt that can be a very destructive thing. And I've learned to just be thankful for what I have. Would I like to be on telly more? Yes, I probably would. Um, but there's no point. And it's that thing, isn't it, of remembering everybody's in their own race and everybody's in a different point. And I always, quite often these days, I think, yes, they're doing well on telly. And also there's this thing that their social media might look incredible, but they might be having a crap time at home. You know, it's that thing, isn't it, that I think we're very aware of at the minute that all might not be what it seems. And I think if I just bear that in mind and know that when I go home, I'm blooming lucky that I've got these incredible three kids. I've got my lovely husband. We do have a nice life. And so what am I getting het up about because I haven't got X, Y or Z? Be thankful for what I have got. And I'm not saying that it's always like that. I'm, you know, there, there aren't mornings where I wake up and go, oh, God, what? She's got that? Why? <laughs> of course that happens. But it, it's learning not to let that eat away at you. And I think that if I was sort of coaching or mentoring anyone, that is one of the things I would really concentrate on this game because it's a really dangerous, damaging, self-esteem damaging element of the business if you're not careful. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I can't thank you enough, Kirsten. Allowing me, and not many people do, allow me just to go down memory lane. And your other handful who, like Steve Wilson and Angelica Bell, just get excited as well about that time. Because it's very easy to go, well, that was just a job. But to you, it was just a job. For me, it was my life. Well, no, it's been my life as well. And I'm so glad that it was my life and it's brilliant what you've made of yourself from it as well you're you're a shining example of it well stop it you stop it you <laughs> stop it you like i said i've learned everything i know from you what can i say he's still after the sign everyone he's still after the sign if o'brien goes down and the sign goes missing you know what to do podcast listeners you know what to do Kirsten O'Brien, her podcast, 16 Summers, is out now. Please listen to it. It's such a good chat she has with people like Jason Manfield and Will Meller, Otis Dealey, Jasmine Harmon, Steve Backshaw, and Melinda Messenger, as she mentioned before. And if you ever get bored, go and watch Kirsten O'Brien on CBBC back in the continuity days. First of all, for her haircuts. And secondly, just to see what the easy life of TV was like. Because at the moment, it's so hard to find things to watch on TV. And then you go back to those days and you think, God, there was so much choice. Whether you're going around the twist, whether you're going through the microscope, whether you were looking to the demon headmaster's evil eye, or just chilling with Tracy Beaker, there was a bit of everything for you. And thank you. Thank you to you for listening to Sakini and Secure. Thank you for going down that little time tunnel of nostalgia. And if you liked what you heard and you like a bit of nostalgia, please go on Apple iTunes, leave a five-star rating and leave a comment in the review section. It's really helpful to me to spread the word that it's okay to not be okay sometimes in these conversations we have really deep mental health chats we talk manifestations we talk about mental health other times it's about nostalgia because that's who what makes us human 
we can't be human by just always being deep and reflective and we can't be human by just always looking to the future we have to have a bit of everything and nostalgia is such a powerful tool to help us just relax and think of a happier time because who doesn't like looking back at their childhood because we all look at the positives of our childhood we kind of forget the negative side we always look at the positives thank you so much for listening to security and security with me johnny seifer until next time thank you and goodbye hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.